I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 83 for November 2019. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1983 was a good year for yours truly at the cinema. I still vividly remember seeing Return of the Jedi, Superman 3, and Krull at the movies. Jedi was generation-defining experience, and what I thought was the end of the Skywalker saga, mistakenly. Superman 3 was memorable for good Superman fighting bad Superman. And uh, regular listeners will know how much we both love Krull. And a film I didn't see at the cinema was 1983's Blue Thunder. But it seemed to be constantly playing on TV and it, on VCR at mm-hmm. friends' birthday yeah, parties in the mid-80s. Some other major films from 1983. Time for a list. Scarface, Trading Places, Z-Lig, New Zealand classic Utu, The King of Comedy, The Man with Two Brains, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, the fourth Dirty Harry film, Sudden Impact, the Bananas final film of Sam Peckinpah, The Osterman Weekend. Have you ever seen that? Uh, not for a long time. That's <laughs> crazy. The Year of the Battle of the Bonds, with the official Roger Moore release Octopussy going up against the renegade Sean Connery 007 adventure Never Say Never Again. And uh, Roger Moore won the Battle of the Box Office, by the way. Uh, Coppola directed two films based on S.E. Hinton's novels in the same year. The Artie Rumblefish with Matt Dillon and Mickey Rourke. And I think we should all reflect on Coppola's The Outsiders and take the advice that Ralph Macchio gave on his deathbed to see Thomas Howe when he said, stay gold, pony boy. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Oh, I just don't want to talk about Krull at the cinema. <laughs> dark, dark time. Hey, uh, so a strange mixed up year in horror as slashes still reigned, but all sorts of more highbrow horrors emerged. This was the year of spoiler alert fave Sleepaway Camp. Yep. A hilarious must-see for horror fans and fans of what the hell am I watching cinema? Um, a threesome of King adaptations, Cujo, Carpenter's underrated Christine, I really like Christine, mm. and David Cronenberg's lovely The Dead Zone, which was an odd bookend for his other film that year, the woefully me- uh, the wonderfully messed up Videodrome. Mm. I love Videodrome. Oh, those two films in the same year, you could not get two different. Yeah, Videodrome was the first Cronenberg film I saw. Oh, wow, what a great yeah, start. Yeah, <laughs> which was pretty bananas. Oh, actually, I, I lie. I think I'd seen The Fly first, but I didn't really realize Oh, I'm going to say Scanners would have been my first. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. But like I say, this was a year stuffed full of arty horror. I mean, I mean, I often talk about the golden age of art house horror we're living in at the moment. Mm. But check out 83. Uh, Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon starred in the stylish vampire flick The Hunger. Michael Mann gave us The Keep, uh, a Euro oddity that's pretty much impossible to find nowadays. There's okay. a r- whole issue around the music rights. All right. Um, and still working in the Netherlands, Paul Verhoeven directed the Hitchcockian thriller The Fourth Man. Mm. And then there was a film... Uh, I really love Richard Franklin's Psycho 2, which attempts the impossible task, of course, of making a 20-odd-year 20 20 year later sequel to one of Hitchcock's most beloved films mm. and manages it. Yeah, I, lo- I really... really effective Yeah, thriller. I really like Psycho 2 as well. Yeah, but on the face of it, it seems like the worst idea ever, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. It does, yeah. Yeah, so interesting year, eighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually did notice when I was going through the year, I was like, man, there's some pretty interesting films there f- from a horror point of view. Yeah, yeah and I, sure. knew, I knew you'd touch on them, but yeah. So, Simon, uh, what have you been watching? Well, as, as, as usual, we've both talked about uh, a bit, and a bit in aeroplanes, which is always interesting. <laughs> but the film I want to talk about is Colour Out of Space. 
So November saw the Hollywood and Avondale show it show its first Terrify, that's spelt uh, Terra-FI Festival. I'll put a link in the show notes. Nice. Um, which also played in Wellington and Christchurch, with a creepy collection of horror and sci-fi. For me, there was no way I was going to miss Richard Stanley of Hardware and getting thrown off the set of Island Doctor of Dr. Moreau fame, um, making his return with an adaptation of my favourite Lovecraft story, Colour Out of Space. Mm-hmm. It started great as well, with eerie shots of smog rat woods and a voiceover reading from Lovecraft's great work. Uh, but then we meet the characters and disappear into a swamp of cum- crunky exposition, mm. uh, which the film takes a long time to recover from. Fortunately, things pick up as the land around Nick Cage, yep, Nick Cage, <laughs> and his family's farm becomes polluted by some sort of alien miasma that ruins the fruit, warps the livestock, and eventually the minds of the family. Some of the clunkiness remains. There's a subplot about Cage's father, which is never fully explored, and um, his, his wife's cancer treatment remains a thematic concern rather than a plot concern. And a witchcraft angle seems like it's ported in from another film entirely. Right. Also, it makes no sense that of all the characters to lose their minds, Nick Cage's should be the first. <laughs> it's like he seems to be the least infected, but the first one to go crazy. Like there's a scene where this kid goes, one of his kids goes, do you think dad's acting weird? And it's like, yeah, he's acting weird. He's <laughs> Nick Cage, you know. It makes no sense in the film, but it makes a lot of sense for the Academy viewers who hooted and delighted every wild cage tick. Uh, I can't imagine many other audiences whooping with glee at a man punching the roof of his car when the engine wouldn't start. <laughs> but our audience were delighted by that. There were cheers, you know. And what other actor could make you whoop with glee in that moment? Eventually, all, it all gets really body horror-y, invoking the thing quite a bit with a bunch of malformed alpacas and two people melded into one, which is really grim. Mm. Uh, it embraces the cosmic nihilism of Lovecraft's work too. The film looks great as well. Uh, there's the sickly purple colour palette that was a treat. Um, when I went in to see this, I, I said to Jens, who I went with, who generously bought the ticket for me, that if it was in the vein of like an 80s Stuart Gordon or a Brian Yasler Lovecraft film, like From Beyond mm. or something like that, I'd be happy. Well, listeners, I can tell you it was, and I was. Oh, that's great. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it was It was actually genuinely good fun. It was a, a middling start, like I say, but yeah. um, the rest of it really comes off. Yeah. Did it have, uh, like, voiceover narration? No, okay. no. It's got a voiceover at the top, which I like because it's actually reading from Lovecraft and then a mm. voiceover at the end. Right. Um, not throughout. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just thought, you know, well, obviously Lovecraft's got that kind of, you know, Finding the terror and the yeah you know, yeah yeah it would be an easy thing to lean on or oh totally and, and Lovecraft's difficult to to adapt because so much of it seems to be in the mind and mm. and, and in the senses and this one does it but as well as you're gonna do I think yeah yeah oh cool I'm really glad to hear mm. that and how about yourself what have you been watching uh well again I I <laughs> saw a lot of films on the plane I uh, had some pretty long flights seventeen hour flights here and there yeah um so I did see a few but look. One I did watch, uh, not on the plane, um, but at the cinema, I saw Joker. Sure. So, have you seen this? Yeah, I have. Okay, so the choice of period setting and the care and the production design to match it means that the oppressive atmosphere is imprinted immediately upon the audience. Gotham presented with like a death wash style hopelessness coursing through society. The unsympathetic elite have let the city fall into disrepair and the lower classes are left to turn on each other. Anyone who is familiar with the Batman's greatest foe will know where the story is headed. Narratively, the film doesn't offer too many surprises, so it's down to Phoenix to assault us with a grandstanding performance that covers every frame of the film. His commitment to the role was admirable, but to steal the title of another of his films, he also knows how to walk the line. 
Uh, it isn't just that Phoenix swings for the fences with the character. It's that when you he chooses to, he times it very well. In fact, perfectly sometimes. And he often shows restraint when you expect him to explode. So it is the bubbling anticipation of the transfer from victim to avenger is where the artistry lies. But also the later scenes when he truly has snapped, the pathos and exhaustion of the character are palpable. A character crying out for connection but incapable of achieving it. I thought the accomplishment of Phoenix's performance is not within the grasp of many actors working today. Mm. Yeah, fair call. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a great performance. Yeah. I didn't love the film, I've got to say. Um, right. I, I felt it was odd that it was a comic book film that was trying so hard to be like a um, a gritty, realistic film, and then mm. it butts up against things like, um, spoiler alert, folks, but Batman's kid uh, parents being shot again, mm. again, which is one of those things we've seen a million times. Yeah. But it's weird to go back into that comic book lore for a film which is trying to do something different, I, th- yeah. I felt. Yeah. Not, it would have almost been a better film if somehow it could exist outside of being a comic book. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing with it, I, I went with a bunch of people who have no interest in superhero films and don't really know the Batman right. things. Uh, and so they were, um, they didn't necessarily get the meaning of what that was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So I mean, they saw yeah. it more as like, oh, Thomas Wayne got killed. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, that's um, Batman's, oh, okay. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and I think that that's where, that's probably where it's getting some of its, um, rave reviews really are from people who aren't usually into any of that right. superhero stuff. Because for me, narratively, I was like, well, all of this is a natural progression. You know that he's going to become the Joker. So it took quite a long time yeah, to get yeah, there. Yeah. The moments when they chose to use the comedy as well, like when he walks into the um the glass door mm. at the hospital. I mean, that was I didn't see that coming, and he wasn't he wasn't intentionally trying to be funny, right? And his character didn't even laugh at that. He was just like, oh. Yeah. So I thought some things like that were quite good. Um, but yeah, yeah. Was, well, Joaquin Phoenix, man. Oh, yeah. It's, it's tremendous. Phenomenal. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. All right. I think it was about a year ago we decided to do the whole series of Friday the 13th. And it, it was good fun. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Start fun. to finish, seeing how that, um, that, that franchise evolved. And so we've decided to do... A nine on Elm Street, all eight, one to eight, including of course Freddy versus Jason, which is the one Freddy, uh, the one Jason film we didn't touch. Last That's time. right, yeah. So that that was our month, just nightmares. <laughs> um, so look, without further ado, Duncan, you drew the um, the short straw or the good straw, I think, in this case, and mm. got the uh, odds, which right. means you're number one. Okay, yeah. So, A Nightmare on Elm Street, released in 1984, written and directed by Wes Craven, starring Heather Lagenkamp. Amanda Weiss, Johnny Depp, and Robert England. Tina is having bad dreams, in which she is pursued by a scarred man waving a glove with razor-sharp knives on the fingers. Tina discovers that her friends, including Nancy, are having similar dreams, and when Tina is killed by the man in her dream, she also brutally dies in the real world. With only Tina's boyfriend as a suspect, Nancy attempts to solve the inexplicable murder and discovers that it may have something to do with her own parents' past. Like Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street is thought of as a classic of the genre. Receiving both good contemporary and retrospective reviews, Nightmare taps into the most primal of fears and creates an endless world of terrifying possibilities for the characters to experience. Its premise also joyfully sidesteps one common irritating pitfall, for me at least, which is characters behaving stupidly or against their survival. Because they are stuck in a dream that they can't get out of. And no matter what they do. But secondly, we've all experienced vivid dream states where 
curiosity might get the better of us. We might wake up going, why did I do that? When you're in a class and see a recently deceased friend being invisibly dragged off down a hallway in real life, you would act very differently than if you were in a dream. In a dream, yes, it makes sense to follow the streaks of blood like a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb trail to your own confrontation with evil. So Craven intentionally focuses on Tina for the first act so that it appears that she will be the heroine. When she is so viciously cut down, we naturally transfer to her friend Nancy, but it also makes the viewer uncertain whether Nancy will be the next to go, mm. especially seeing as she has the next dream. And while Heather Lagenkamp is not the most gifted actor, her character does have a considerable journey and her performance is a dedicated one. She's mentally strong and takes on her parents and is often willing to confront Freddie. Uh, her boyfriend, Johnny Depp, is a likable if unremarkable character. His final scene, he wears like a crop top gridiron jersey yeah. as showing off his abs. Well, he doesn't actually have abs, just showing off his, his gut. Uh, <laughs> watches a portable television while listening to massive headphones that are blasting out his vinyl collection. Uh, Depp hardly displays box office smashing potential, but he does have comic timing and isn't afraid to look a little scared. Um, he's sitting there saying to his mum, She's like, oh, why don't you turn the TV off? And he's like, oh, I'm waiting for um, Miss Nude America to come on. Yeah. And he's, she's like, well, you got headphones on. You're not going to be able to hear what she says. And he goes, well, what do I care what she says? <laughs> uh, so A Nightmare on Elm Street's first act subtly toys with the convention that have been set up by its famous predecessors, Halloween and Friday the 13th. Horny teenagers convene in a dark house. Noises are heard. The audience peers through the window from the point of view of an unseen voyeur in the backyard. Jump scares abound, and false securities are instilled in the characters and audience because it's a false alarm. What it also illustrates is how the threat is not from without, but within. There is no lock that can keep out this villain, no door that can be barricaded, no police that can come to the rescue, no magic weapon. Freddy is an indestructible nightmare that torturously terrifies his victims with their literal worst nightmares. But it's a slam dunk of a concept, and one that must be appreciated for its originality. Because it's entered the popular consciousness, it feels slightly predictable in a modern viewing. Right. But contemporary audiences were shaken by its assault on their most subliminally personal fears. Um, you know, I, I remember this and, and people just freaking out about it when it was mm. released, just going. And I remember seeing this quite young as well. Yeah. And just going, oh, this is really, really creepy. But because Freddie's such a kind of pop culture icon. He is now. You yeah. know, now. It's kind of, it's difficult to rewatch it without kind of thinking of it, you know, oh, yeah. this isn't, you know, not being blown away by it. So what you'll find is people criticize the, the kind of following installments two, three through eight as betraying the carefully constructed rules of the original, you know, around dream states and mm. things. But on revisiting Nightmare this time around, the film plays fast and loose with, with these rules from the get-go. There's the famous image of Freddie's tongue bursting out of a telephone. Mm. That happens when Nancy's awake. Yeah. So already they just like betray their own rules. Right. Tina's demise uh, is signposted from her interaction with her boyfriend. He's like this tough guy douche who Tina goes to bed with while Nancy makes Glenn sleep alone on the couch uh, while she like rests under a crucifix. Instead, Tina engages in noisy sex with like a Danny Zuko boyfriend and then she's just immediately sliced up. Mm. And just as soon as you see her choice of partner and her willingness to engage in sex... And then, right. like, the fact that Johnny Depp's passed out to a couch and Nancy's sleeping underneath a crucifix by herself, you're like, oh, man, you're so dead. <laughs> you're going to get chopped up. Yeah. Up until that point, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe you are the heroine because Craven apparently very much wanted to do that Janet Lee and Psycho thing. 
that was his intention of, of putting humor yeah, in those yeah. first screens. So Freddy is noticeably absent for large portions of the film. Johnny Depp and Rod's deaths are seen in the real world, but not uh, the dream dimension. So we see it actually happening, you know what I mean? You don't yeah. go into the real world and see Freddy doing anything. And with the exception of possibly part two, it, it's a hit ratio that is almost never repeated in the series. Uh, yeah, it kind of in the rest of the series, you pretty much always see their dreams. Yeah, right, right. Um, so Freddy's glove appearing in the bathtub is still fundamentally unsettling. Uh, Hell like, yeah. Yeah. Like most villains, hit, uh, his most effective scenes are hints and glimpses in the shadows. So it's interesting that Craven makes him so visible and vocal in the initial fatal attack on Tina. Mm. Delivering one-liners, extending his go-go gadget arms, showing off by chopping his own fingers like Vivian and the young ones. It's a, like a curious decision that I think Craven may have made differently given an opportunity. And in fact, he does 10 years later in New Nightmare. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed like when I was watching it this time, I was like, wow, they really go all in. And then he kind of sinks away again and you don't really see him for quite a while. Yeah. Until the climax, really. Yeah. Um, and look, actually, the ending I found remains a little underwhelming and it seems strange that Craven has no better ideas than a contradictory one where Nancy says she refuses to give Freddy power and he simply disappears, only the, then to have her like immediately step out into another nightmare. My understanding is that the shock kind of Carrie-style ending was forced upon Craven. Yes, yeah, what I understand as well, yeah. He wanted to have a happy ending, which would at least given the previous scene some meaning. You kind of have all these false endings, like one after the other. Followed Nancy on this journey, and she's done all this stuff, and then, yeah, it just seems a continual nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I believe it was attacked on, kind of, you know, as the ending we need. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, in summary, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is still an effective film. It has imagination, and some of the dream elements, particularly in the first half, maintain an eerie grip, but it doesn't have the suspense that Halloween still contains. Halloween has a really tense final act that I think holds up today. But, yeah. But Craven doesn't lean into the suspense as much as Carpenter does. He likes the anticipation of Freddy's arrival, which are among the best scenes. Unlike Halloween, however, Craven is more interested in his themes. And unlike Friday the 13th, he's more sympathetic towards his characters. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we've got a couple of little categories here. Yeah, for sure. Let's go. So we've got the budget. So the budget was $1.8 million. That's so cheap. And the box office was $25.5 million. Yeah, man. You can Not see bad. why they made sequels. <laughs> no bad return. So we've got a couple of other little categories. We did a similar thing for Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we had hidden... Hockey masks? Yeah, we had yeah, hockey yeah. masks. This time around, instead of uh, out of 13 hockey masks, we've gone for the four. Yeah. Uh, because we've gone for four fingers on the glove. Yeah. Razor sharp fingers on the glove. Uh, instead of last time we went for like hedonism of the victims and um, Jason mythology. So this time we've gone for annoyingness of the adults. Yep. Imagination of the kills. Yep. And uh, explain away the deaths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how difficult it would be to explain yeah, away the Yeah, because it's deaths. one of the things that always gets me is that they, like, uh, oh, it was a suicide or, you <laughs> yeah. know, some some maniac killed them. It's like, really? <laughs> how can that you, you, that's getting a bit mad. So there's always one death in every one of these films where I think there's no way that was like a suicide yeah. or a random. Anyway, sorry. Okay, so the annoyingness of the adults. This is a solid four out of four uh, razor-sharp finger gloves. Uh, John Saxon has the double whammy of being the disbelieving father yeah, and the disbelieving police chief. Yeah. Uh, with the triple threat of actually being the reason why all the carnage is set in motion. 
then you have Nancy's mother, who's like a doe-eyed alcoholic, sleepwalking through life, plagued with guilt. Uh, you know, who like literally locks her daughter in, mm. you know, into her house. Uh, Johnny Depp's parents chime in by hanging up the phone on Nancy when she tries to warn them that Freddie yeah. will attack her son in the sleep. They slam the phone down, leave it off the receiver, and say, "You got to be firm with these kids." Um, and to top it off, when Nancy traps Freddie in her house and she's trying to alert the police, who are literally across the road because they're investigating Johnny Depp's death, um, she's like smashing her windows and screaming, and they just stare at her and go, oh, "Everything will be okay. Don't worry." So you know, like fires pouring out of yeah, there, and it's yeah. like smoke. It's just like, uh, you know, it's a maddening theme, you know. Uh, Imagination of the Kills, I'd give this a three out of four. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film only has three central kills, uh, but it's Tina's, but Tina's is visceral and permanently etched into like my 12-year-old brain or however I was older. It is, in my mind, probably one of the best kills of the franchise. Yeah, I I think so. Again, just put yourself into the mindset of like how how this must have appeared to people who were yeah. watching it for the first time who had never seen anything like this. Yeah. That was quite, it's quite striking. And yeah. it's quite brutal. It um, is, it is both of those things. Yeah. One of the things that struck me watching it again now, because I watched it before this, mm. before we did this, is she's crawling along the ceiling getting brutal, brutalised, but you've got the boyfriend on the ground in the foreground. Mm. And th- that really helps sell the effect because you sort of know how they do it. You know, it's yeah. a tilted ceiling and all the rest. But he's in the shot as well. And yeah. I think that really helps sell the illusion. Yeah, that's right. It's a really clever decision. And then also the way that she drops and then just kind uh, of falls on the ground like a kind of like, like a, a leech or, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really wow. It's, it, it, yeah, it's full on. And um, while Depp's death is just like ludicrously iconic, so much blood, so much blood, which moves in perfectly to explain away the deaths. Which I mean, you got to give this a four out of four, right? I mean, there's little to explain the murder of Depp. Just like I. Geyser of blood explodes from his bed. Yeah. Uh, blood drops from every corner, bleeds through the floor. The body's nowhere to be seen. It's like the shining levels of the old hemoglobin. Uh, I'd say it's a four out of four finger gloves on the impossible to explain away scale. I just, I mean, they even sit there and go, uh, yeah. what? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 just, yeah. Even the adults there are going, like, I don't know. Um, yeah. and, and again, it's one of those things of like when, because it's so iconic and you see the geyser of blood and it's so spectacular, in the real world, you're like, what the hell is happening in the dream? Because you never see a hint of that mm-hmm. what's happening in that dream. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. something I haven't really thought about. That's an effective decision, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same with Rod when Rod gets suicided, you know, with the... Yeah. Um, you, you don't, don't see how that's happening. Yeah, you don't see how that was yeah. actually happening in um, in the dream world. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. That, that's... Uh, Anything you'd like to add there? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, there's something, because I, I don't know whether I mention it later on, so it's worth bringing up. But one of the reasons um, I like the jerkishness of the parents is it really isolates the kids. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, it's something that's a, it's a running theme throughout the series, but the kids are on their own, mm. you know? And it's so that's a kind of a terrifying thing when you're controlled by parents and, you're, you know, they, they set the rules, but th- their rules are hurting you mm. and, and, and putting you in danger. And, 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 you know, they set up the fact of the street in the first place. Yeah. Parents are responsible for, for why you're in such trouble. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you compare it to something like Friday 13th, there, there's no such thing. Parents don't really exist in that world. No. You know, and so... Um, and, and the other thing I really like about the, this series as a whole is, for the most part, these kids all know they're in trouble. They yeah. all know they're in danger, and they're all working together and trying to come up with ideas and things. Mm. Whereas in something like, in most of the other slashes, uh, the kids are just, you know, they're just out, out to get laid and have a party. And, yeah. and, and then it's 
a shock to them and they end up getting <laughs> killed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and maybe the final girl's a bit cl- clued up, but no one else is. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I like the fact that the kids are more proactive in the in the Nightmare series. It's mm. um, it, it's a bit of a rarity for this sort of film. Yeah, that's right. Because I think, you you know, like another Friday 13 and stuff, if, if anyone's like a bit cautious, like, ah, look at you, you square prude. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, why don't you just, you know, go skinny dimming and smoke some weed and... Yeah, know, relax. relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas in this one, it's like... It, it, they often, st- pretty much all of them start with a dream sequence and generally one of the main yeah. characters are like, oh, man, something's not right here. And then that go. scene when they start describing him and someone else goes, with a, with a hat and yeah. a scarred face. And it's like, <laughs> you dreamt him too? You know, yeah. there's usually one of those scenes. Eh? <laughs> right. yeah. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. I don't know. And so... uh Onto the you you rolled the dice and got the the evens here. Yeah, you, the she, evens is a bit of a tough call. I found it is. Yeah. Uh, so right, let's get into it. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, nineteen eighty five. Uh, now I haven't done the whole cast list like you did, so mm. we'll just have to get straight into it. We've talked Ro- Robert England's in it. Robert England's in it. Spoil, spoil. Yeah, alert. yeah, yeah. That's right. And we've talked about this film before. I think it was in our list of secretly gay movies. Mm. Um, and when I say this is a gay film, I don't mean that in the pejorative sense. I just mean that it's a mainstream sequel. To a massive film, we just talked about the budget, uh, you know, how much money Nightmare on Elm Street made, that accidentally turned out to be kind of a bit gay. Mm. And that's a great thing, as it turns out, because if it wasn't thematically and stylistically so unexpectedly homoerotic, I don't know what we'd have to talk about, <laughs> because as a film, it's otherwise pretty terrible. Uh, shockingly, it turns out that Freddy isn't dead after all. But now he needs a vessel to possess so that he can keep killing those pesky Elm Street kids. The body he chooses is teen boy Jesse. Note the gen- kind of gender-neutral name there. Who he begins to torment in his dreams, urging him to kill. You talk about the rules. Well, the rules are broken all over the place yeah. here. As Freddy appears seemingly only in Jesse's dreams, but wants to possess him and use him to enter the real world, which he does in a scene that has Freddy running amok in a drunken pool party that feels more like a Friday 13th sort of deal. How can Freddy, finger knives and all, suddenly become real? Mm. Who knows? But this whole sequence handily becomes my least easy to explain death. Because a bunch of kids are chopped up by a magical dream goblin that everyone can see, <laughs> yeah. you know? Also, he makes things explode and fire to spring up at will, which seems difficult to rationalise and yeah. explain away later on. Yeah. There's this whole thing, too, in this film with um, heat. Everyone's complaining about the heat. The air conditioning's oh. too hot, you know? Yeah. Um, the gas stove just ignites for some reason. The toaster's on the fritz. Mm. It's a really weird thing that's never really um, explained, except in the sense that downstairs seems to be where Freddy's coming from, where his spirit mm. seems to be coming from. Right, yeah. Maybe it's just a reason to um, get a li- the dudes can get all their shirts off. Oh, totally, <laughs> eh? Uh, yeah, yeah, the lead guy, um, Jesse is sweaty a lot. Yeah. And there are precious few deaths in this film. I mean, there's a ton of random pool parties knifed, but before that, only two people get killed. Three, I guess, if you count the exploding budgie. But that's <laughs> even that seems a bit thin. Really. Yeah. Thank goodness, then, that it's all seemingly an accidental metaphor for a teenage boy coming to terms with his homosexuality. Because that literally is the only thing you'd want to talk about. So let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Firstly, the series hasn't been big on sex and nudity, apart from, as you say, Tina. Mm. Um, especially compared to the Friday the 13th and any of those other, uh, other slash films. And yet this one seems fairly interested in Jesse's ass, mm. whether it's thrusting rhythmically to a pop song montage. Or being revealed in a playground tussle with handsome best friend slash bully, Ron. Mm. When Freddy tries to appear to Jesse while he's making out with his girlfriend, where does Jesse go? Straight to Ron so he can sleep over. Something even Ron seems (laughs) (laughs) understandably slightly (laughs) suspicious about. 
Earlier, after an alarming Freddy dream, Jimmy, Jesse runs into the night and discovers a gay bar frequented by his gym teacher, who, and I've no idea why this would happen in any world, makes him go back to school to run laps of the gymnasium at night. Mm. Oh, this doesn't make any sense, huh? Staggeringly, no one at the time, excepting perhaps for Mark Patton, the, the gay actor playing the character of Jesse, realised they were making a film exploring gay themes. The screenwriter would later claim he knew, and Robert England says he was aware, but at the time, everyone seemed kind of oblivious. You know, mm. there's like the great documentary series um, I think we've both watched about yeah. the series, and everyone seems a little confused by the fact that this film turned out the way it did. Yeah. Which is remarkable. It's just wild. Yeah, I, um, in the series, uh, the the writer kind of claims that he kind of that that it was all amplified by the director and 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 i think that the writer knew what he's doing but the director had no idea right and the director's like made some decisions that just amplified it even more yeah and was like blissfully unaware of what he was doing i still don't understand how you how you can do that like especially the dance scene where he's dancing by himself is how you can go well this makes sense in a yeah horror film wanted to be a kind of a risky business kind of thing because you know, yeah a film with tom cruise you know yeah um, but but the gym teacher, that whole sequence yeah. of the gym teacher, I don't know how you can write that into a film and not think yeah, there's something going on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's even a shot of a game called Probe in Jesse's closet, which I noticed <laughs> yeah. this time around. You know when he opens yeah. his closet? He's got a game called Probe yeah. in his closet. It's the only yeah. thing you see, Probe, up yeah. on the shelf. That's what I mean. All Hilarious. that stuff is just like, you know. Yeah. Like even the set design seems to be into it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, look, for bad parenting, I'm just going to give this one a solitary one finger. Most of the parents seem kind of decent. How Lisa's parents just want all the kids to have fun, really. Mm. You know, he's trying to man the barbecue and mm. make sure they have a good party. Their biggest crime might be just being fuddy-duddies, really. Mm. Jesse's dad is a bit of a dick, but he's played by Clue Gulliger. And Clue, in real life, I think, and the movies, seems like a fun dude. Yeah. You know, just a funny guy. The worst he manages is to be kind of an annoying nag. The rest of the time, he's just welcome comic relief. So... I can't hate these parents. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, and a 2.5, I think, for kills. Right. They're not great. They're really not. None of them are particularly memorable, but at least Coach Schneider gets pelted with balls, mm -hmm. strung up in the steamy gym showers, stripped naked, and has his bare ass whipped by towels. <laughs> and only then is slashed to death by Freddy. I mean, at least we have that. Yeah, you know? And right. that is um, a memorable scene. It's pretty unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. a standout. Um, and yeah, look, still, the budget was only $3 million, up a little bit. And it made thirty million, so a sequel, part three, was always on the cards. Mm. Yeah, um, this was called. Was this called Freddy's Revenge? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, the symbolism of of Freddy literally coming out of yeah him as well. Is, yeah, yeah, something inside me and all this kind of. You know, the man. Yeah, yeah, that him. scene where Freddy, um, where he's making up with his girlfriend, it's the first time. Like he seems something different to her for the rest mm. of the film, which is weird. And everyone's like, "Ah, oh, when are you going to get some?" You know, sort yeah. Of and then Freddie's tongue comes out of his mouth in the middle of a scene, mm. and then he goes running off to his best mates. Hilarious! Yeah. It, it, it's, it's worth if you haven't watched. If anyone listening hasn't watched this, is definitely worth checking out. Oh, sure. Look, as a sequel to the first one, and as a pure horror film, it's kind of a bust, but it's oh, yeah. it's a great watch. It will, yeah. I mean, uh, that's the beauty of being able to watch it now. Is you can almost watch it in isolation. Yeah, it kind of really doesn't have anything to do with the first one at all. Yeah. yeah. And then we're on to A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Released in 1987, directed by Chuck Russell. Written by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Chuck Russell, and Frank Darabont. Starring Patricia Arquette, Heather Langenkamp, John Saxon, Lawrence Fishburne, and Robert England. 
Kristen is attacked by Freddy Krueger in her dreams, and her concerned mother commits her to a mental health facility where other troubled teens from Elm Street are also being stalked in their dreams. Nancy, now a trainee psychiatrist, is the only one who believes them. Together, she helps the kids find their dream powers to fight back against their tormentor. So look, Dream Warriors is like the Goldfinger or the Avengers of the series. It was a box office bonanza. It's the one that captured the imagination of his audiences. Mm. It also added the iconography of the myth of Freddy. And this is where Freddy becomes a full comedic force, spouting one-liners and really toying with his victims. It adds the unforgettable wrinkle of the nature of the villain's literal conception. Uh, Part 3 brings some heavy hitters into the franchise for one time only. David Lynch's favourite composer, Angelo Badalamenti, scores the film. Mm. Shawshank Redemption director Frank Darabont co-writes. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Oscar winner Patricia Arquette star. Mm. This is about as legit as Elm Street gets. Yeah, Wes Craven back as well. That's right, yeah. So Dream Warriors also takes Nancy's proactive approach in the final act of the original and builds a group of fighters out of it. While kids in the previous installments, and certainly in most other franchises, are running scared, Dream Warriors has the prey stand up and fight back. Of course, this is a horror film, so most of them get shredded. But it's interesting to see, because in slashes of this era, as you were talking about before, they were kind of single, unsuspecting victims getting picked off. Here, we begin by joining the teens at the lowest point. They're drug addicts, suicidal, or traumatized to the point of not speaking. And they've been hospitalized because of it. So to see them rise to the occasion and improve in kind of character is a significant change for a horror. Like part one, Dream Warriors starts in a dream sequence. Our heroine, already familiar with Freddy. Kristen is often held up as a favourite in the series. She's willful and often fearless, but she doesn't have like a lot of idiosyncratic personality as a teenager. While the other patients are sometimes dipping into caricatures, she's like pure protagonist. They're dressing as wizards, dreaming of being TV stars, imagining themselves as flick-knife-wielding punks. And Kristen's defining characteristics is kind of tied up in her trying to overcome Freddy. Mm. I, I, I don't know, really know what her character is. Right. Um, especially in comparison to the, like, the secondary characters. Yeah. Uh, part three is the first of the series to kill off its returning champ. Spoilers. Nancy goes down in the final battle. And it's what I thought was a surprisingly muted sacrifice watching it this time around. Keeping record, this is probably Camp's least convincing performance in the series. <laughs> Aged up just three years to be a psychiatrist with like an awkward lack of chemistry with Craig Wasson, the Bill Maher lookalike from Body Double. <laughs> uh, how this guy was lead actor in a steamy Brian De Palma film with Melanie Griffith and heroic doctor in this film is one of life's quaint uh, mysteries. It totally is. Uh, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> I've gone on about him before, I think, when we did the De Palma thing, and I was like, how is this guy a lead actor? <laughs> What a blessed career, man. Yeah, man. He did, he did luck into those roles. Uh, Dream Warriors is a fan favourite and really did consolidate the fan base. It has a good setting, memorable set pieces and secondary characters. It adds an interesting twist on dream warfare and adds to the Freddy mythology. But it's the pace of the instalment that works in its favour watching it this time around. The narrative just has good forward momentum, so you don't dwell on the silliness too much. Um, you kind of understand that there's a, there's a point to what they're doing. There's a slight ticking clock. There's mm. dual action in the dream and then in the real world yep. where they have to go get his bones. and yep. So you're kind of cutting back and forth. So you're never leaning into one thing too much. I mean, this is the one where uh, the idea of inventive kills becomes a thing. Yeah, eh? that's right. The budget here was $5 million. 
Yeah. The box office was $44.8 million. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, annoyingness of the adults, three out of four. The female doctor is an obstinate presence, yes. never believing the children, punishing them, and firing those that help them. The worst, of course, is she shoots them up with sedatives. Yeah. Which just happens all the time in the series, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, well, we just need to calm down with your sedatives. Oh! Uh, <laughs> the adults claw a couple back by having the male doctor gradually believe them in Saxon to come out of retirement to help defeat Freddy. Uh, but then again, there is a predatory male orderly who offers drugs to a recovering addict that he is responsible for, which is isn't annoying as downright real world creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So imagination of the kills. Uh, I'm actually going to give this only a two out of four razor finger gloves. It has an iconic kill with the woman smashed into a TV, and that's primarily because of Freddie's line, "Welcome to prime time, bitch," which uh, I believe may have actually been ad libbed. Right. Uh, I'm going to be controversial and say that this is actually the most overrated kill in the series. And I think it's mainly because of that line that people think of it so fondly. But using a guy's veins as puppet strings is far more inventive. It's fantastic, man. It's great. It's the best kill in this one for me. Especially topped off with Freddy's gleefully gruesome visage giant in the sky while Mm -hmm. he does it. It reminds me of like... Those uh, like you know, Brave and the Bold comic books, you know, like with Batman and the, the like seventies early eighties, artists would have you know, yeah, yeah, big in the sky. It's also cool because in the real world, he just looks like a sleepwalker. Yeah, that's right. And then you cut to the dream world, and it's this horrifying side of this yeah. guy. His veins pulled out of his. Oh, it's terrifying. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but then actually, that dips into the rules question because he's dreaming, and he just has this part where he just magically walks through a locked door. Yeah. In the real world. Yeah, right, right. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So you can just do that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right. That doesn't that. seem right. So the explain away the deaths. Um, here it's a little more difficult seeing as the conceit is that they should all look like suicide. These kids are, so, you know, yeah, yeah, for the most yeah. part are suicidal or have major yeah. issues. So I'm actually going to give this a one out of four razor finger gloves. Razor finger gloves. I will say that smashing your head onto a wall-mounted TV takes a decent amount of theoretical physics to explain how that self This was the one for me. Yeah. Like, when I watched the film again, it's like, uh, I just don't know that that looks like a suicide. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Like, that TV's a decent distance off the ground, yeah. and your head's inserted right into it. Yeah, like you... Your body to hang in. Theoretically, I guess you could jump onto the couch and just launch yourself at the thing. Mm. But, um, yeah, that's that, that was the one where it's like, hmm, that was a bit harder. Yeah, it seems like there needs to be another person involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And Lawrence Fishburne's just sitting there going, man, it's going to be... I, I'm in trouble here. Yeah, of course I, he is. I, I, I let her watch TV after midnight or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, watching it again, I think that it it, uh, it still holds up. And yes. There's some care taken with it. And there's also a lot of care of, like you say, especially after two, of getting back into um, some sense of rules and some sense of, yeah. uh, of, of what made the first one good. So when I rewatched this one, I'd forgotten who lives and dies, you know, because right. it's been a while since I saw it. Um, even though I think back in the day, because this was massive, I think I probably watched it more than any of the other ones, you know, back when I was a uh, a teenager myself. And I found myself actually a little saddened by a couple of the deaths. Mm -hmm. And that's because Dream Warriors does something that a few slash... I think the series in general, it makes you care more about these kids than a lot of slash movies does. Um, Most of Jason kills in the Friday the 13th franchise are fairly forgettable characters. And some you actually just want to see die. Mm. You know, they're just like, oh, this guy's so annoying. Yeah. You know. But I like the kids in this one. I probably like the kids more because... They are so trapped, and even more so than normal in this film. I mean, mm. they're actually trapped in an institution with people who can give them drugs and, yeah. you know, stop and, and actually work against them. Um, 
they're also characters with weaknesses who dream quite literally of being stronger than that than they are, and that's yeah. kind of relatable. I mean, that's yeah. a, you know something I think we can relate to, and it makes it easy to like them. Yeah, and it's like uh, that you know the, the there's one part where the guys hiding pills and there's an, you know he doesn't want to take the pills and there's yeah. another one where um, they take turns looking over each other to yeah. make sure that they don't fall asleep and um, they're already trying to problem solve when you meet them yeah um, yeah. yeah which I you know yeah they're, act, they're you. proactive you know yeah yeah, yeah. 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 that's what I talk about that kind of forward momentum sometimes it's lacking in slasher films in general but actually it's fairly consistent in the series for the most part mm, agreed mm. yeah oh, I'll see you in hell Okay, that brings us to A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master from 1988. Shockingly, it turns out that Freddy isn't dead after all. What? Indeed, <laughs> after a dream dog pisses fire on his skeletal remains, an event I did not just make up, he returns to hunt down the remaining kids from the last film before setting his sights on a new batch of Elm Street victims, including shy girl Alice, who has the talent of absorbing the abilities of his slain friends. A pretty handy skill when it comes to facing down Freddy in the final act. Look, I always remember this one as a solid entry in the franchise, but watching it again, I realised it's a bit of a mess. Um, <laughs> Freddy's resurrection is just a joke. I mean, that makes, yeah. that's terrible. The characters are mostly one note, all getting deaths that match their crudely set up characteristics. The laziest being Debbie, who's a moment she has shown being afraid of cockroaches. It's just this like, uh, oh, it's a cockroach. And maybe two lines that establish her as a workout freak, even though we never really see her doing workouts. Yeah. So that she can later be tortured while benching and then transformed into a cockroach. Yeah. It's like, I think that death just was reverse engineered into her character. Yeah. Worst of all, Freddy's final death makes no sense. Not when compared to the three previous entries that all established decent enough rules for how Kruger operates and how mm. he can be dealt with. So while none of this makes a lot of sense, it really does look good. Mm. Uh, Rennie Harlan, after directing the silly but stylish horror flick Prison, which I can remember back in the day, that was right. a good looking film, delivers the same sort of style here, getting a lot of gloss out of a limited budget. Paul Kirsten, played by a different actress after Patricia K. Arquette, probably fairly wisely, I think, <laughs> declined, is showing rushing to her doom by a God's eye view camera that races with her upstairs to her room in one like extended, unsettling take. Harlan would use a similar shot to show another character's death in a classroom with the additional floor tiles angled in on her like, in this claustrophobic way, mm. uh, like arrows to further isolate her. Even the stuff that's silly is delivered pretty well. The cockroach death is over the top, to be sure, but mm. it's also one of the most memorably grim of the series, Yeah, with Debbie's arms snapping grotesquely oh. before snapping off and completely and dropping to the floor, like just flopping to the floor. It, uh, it's that really is so memorable. Yeah, oh, that's oh, fantastic. That, that's stuck in my head, yeah. And no, I know that's on the effects team as well, but Harlan shoots it well. Mm. Uh, Freddy's silly death is likewise a standout as his captured souls tear from his chest and rip him apart. Mm. It's clearly several different scales of model. There's, there's like a, a life-size one with puppets and then there must be a, an enormous one with real people moving inside it. Mm. Uh, and they're edited together beautifully. Mm. Um, this was um, John Carl Buechler who did the effects on, on, I think, that sequence. Now, he would go on to direct Friday 13th Part 7, so just a little crossover there right. for you. Uh, the other moment I loved was Alice and generic handsome himbo Dan racing to Debbie's rescue but getting stuck in a recurring dream. Oh, I love that so much. It's such a good concept, you know? Yeah. It's a cool idea and I like that disposable Dan gets his one moment when he kind of realises what's happening before she does. That, yeah. You know? Also, Alice. Why has no character been called Alice in this film before? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. That's perfect. So it's kind of a mixed bag of Freddy treats for me. Mm -hmm. Dumb as a bag of hammers, a confused set of dream rules and some weaker than normal characters. But it's a really good-looking film, enough to return 
50 million on a much more elevated 13 million dollar budget ensuring that the franchise would of course roll on mm. so look I'm going to give it a full four finger knives out of four for terrible adults right I mean that's just, they're a horrible <laughs> set um, I loved Alice's grumpy drunken dad continuing the fine tradition of jerk adults in the franchise saying to Alice you're going out dressed like that. <laughs> when she might as well be dressed like one of the girls from Little House on the Prairie. I mean, that only makes sense if he actually wanted her to be dressed like a tramp, you yeah. know? Yeah. And he was somehow disappointed. It's nuts. Plus, we get the welcome return of Kristen's nasty, shaking mum, Elaine. Truly one of the series' all-time great, uncaring Elm Street parents. Yeah. You know, I loved her in the last one. I just yeah. thought she peaked out as, <laughs> as an annoying parent you will get in this franchise, yeah. eh? Uh, and a three for the kills. It's a real solid bunch here with Debbie's bug death as the standout. But I also thought Joey drowning in his own waterbed was pretty cool. Yeah. Though that does lead me to the death least likely to be explained away <laughs> without supernatural cause because how does someone drown inside the bladder of their own waterbed? Yeah, I know. Like you're not going to be able to <laughs> climb inside, drown, and yet also make sure it's sealed so yeah. that your body's in there. You know, like mm. you've been bought in a, shop, in a grocery store. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So there should be a lot of red flags for the police there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one to explain away for sure. Um, I've said before, I think I said in one of the recent podcasts, four is my favourite um, oh, right. of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Um, and I think because it's so vivid, the part where her arms fall to the ground, mm. I still, I, you know, I just have a memory of that yeah, the sound yeah. and the look, everything, I, you know, without having seen it um, for a long time. And yeah, the waterbed death, the souls at the end, mm. the the caught in the loop is it, it's brilliant. It really stuck out to me when I was a kid watching this, and I was yeah. like, "Wow, that's that's really smart." I can't believe no one's done that yeah. in, in Nightmare on Elm Street yet. Yeah. Um, it's so smartly done. It's bonkers, you know, this film. Uh, like you say, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what I thought with one and three is that watching them back again is kind of the restraint in some of those. Like two's kind of ridiculous for a different way. Yeah. Um, and three and one and three don't really have that ridiculous that like two and four seem to have anyway. Yeah, I kind of look at three as moving in that direction maybe or at yeah. least showing the possibilities of it. You yeah. know, you've got Freddy being a giant phallic snake monster at one point yeah. and, um, you know, inserting drug, having the... Dr yeah, drug fingers and drug so fingers, yeah. there's a sense of maybe that's starting to come through. Yeah, but four runs with it. Yeah, yeah, four really escalates it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely had fond, fond memories of four. Like I say, watching it again, it's a little, a little bit of a mess. Yeah, but it looks so good. Yeah, and the other thing is that moving into the five, they made um, three, four, and five like year after year. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's the first four done. We're just going to take a, a brief. Uh, break. I'm going to have a nap. Um, Duncan, will you watch over me? Make sure yeah, nothing for happens. Sure. I mean, you know, like I, you know, I haven't slept for a couple of days, but I'm sure. I'm sure it'll, it'll, we'll be awake. fine. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll come back with parts five through to eight yeah. of a nightmare on Elm Street.